Hi, everyone. This is John Mandrola on the Sensible Medicine Podcast, and I'm super excited to have two physician researchers uh, who published a really interesting paper in JAMA on August 17th. This was entitled Financial Conflicts of Interest in Public Comments on Medicare National Coverage Determinations of Medical Devices, and it was really about conflict of interest. And so the first author we have with us Angela Liu, and uh, one of the senior authors, Rita Redberg, both for, at the time were at UCSF, and now Angela Liu has moved on to Mayo Clinic. So welcome to both of you. Thanks. Great to be here. Thank you. I appreciate it as well. All right. Dr. Liu, tell us about this research letter in, in JAMA. Tell us what you did and what you found, and then we'll talk more about it in depth. Yeah. So... Um, we were interested in looking at um, CMS's national coverage determinations. We used that process to basically figure out what services and products that Medicare wants to cover for their beneficiaries. Um, this process includes a public comments period where the public can comment on whether they want to support Medicare's decision in coverage or they oppose it. And anybody can comment during these periods. We were just wondering who's commenting and if they had any financial conflicts of interest in the um, the NCED that they are commenting on. So from our research, we looked at four NCDs and we found that majority of the commenters came from physicians and that physicians, teaching hospitals and organizations, they all there's a majority that had a financial conflict of interest. So we wanted to share that information with the public. Right now, you do not have to disclose any of your conflicts of interest when we're commenting. However, we thought this would be very beneficial for Medicare to include that in the public comments period because this can help inform decisions that they make. So the national coverage decision is um, kind of something special. It's something that the CMS does to decide what they're going to cover, and it has huge implications. And my understanding is they publish first a draft document, and then the public can comment. Is that right? Yes, that's right. So they do their own research first to figure out if they want to cover um, a product or service or device and then they come up with a proposal and the public can comment on whether they agree with Medicare or if any changes need to be made. During this process, they also can add new evidence to support their claims, which is very important for Medicare because then they can see if it's new information that they can add um, to see if they need to change their decisions or not. But during this process, they don't have to disclose anything. So um, it's a little bit, um, I would say Medicare can't get the full picture if they're not disclosing if they have financial conflicts of interest. And so I, when they put this draft out for uh, a device, say, um, people can comment and then these comments are public and that anybody can look and say there's, 100 commenters and 99 say that you should cover this 
uh, more extensively or you should expand indications for this. Um, there's no way to know whether the people who comment have any uh, conflicts of interest. Exactly. Unless they decide to, um, they decide that they want to disclose it in their comments, which um, out of a hundred and no, 681 comments, only two actually disclose their conflicts of interest. So it's pretty rare that people would offer to do it themselves. And um, tell me what specific, uh, I think you looked at four NCDs, which, which ones were they? Yeah, we looked at pulmonary embolectomies, TMVRs, TAVRs, and also artificial hearts. So TMVR is a device that uh, clips the mitral valve. Is that about right? Yep. And uh, TAVR is uh, implantation of the aortic valve through the leg. And these are pretty expensive. These are all pretty costly interventions, I, I bet. Yes, exactly. Artificial. Okay. Very. Yeah. <laughs> then invasive, yes. And, and Rita, what is the... What are the implications for a national coverage decision? What does that actually mean? Well, like you said earlier, John, it's huge. You know, a national coverage decision trumps all local coverage. So CMS is mostly determined by local coverage and only for big areas, areas that have a lot of implications or areas where there's a lot of controversy, CMS will take a national coverage decision. And that is, as you were saying earlier, a much more involved process, generally because it involves a big evidence review, this public comment period, and it also often will involve convening the Medicare Evidence Development and Coverage Advisory Committee. And so, and then the decision will be binding. And it means that, and these were all examples where they were um, proposing an expansion of coverage and the comments were overwhelmingly for an expansion of coverage. And so the relevance of who is commenting and whether or not they have a financial interest in the outcome of the decisions is really important. Um, to know for the public, for CMS, and um, for anyone looking at it. Right. So just in terms of the implications for NCD, I'm pretty sure we have a national coverage decision for something as simple as pacemaker implantation. And the national coverage decision means that you cannot put a pacemaker in someone unless they have symptomatic bradycardia, no matter how slow or no matter what the rhythm is, they have to have symptomatic bradycardia. And I uh, sort of lived through the ICD national coverage decision where uh, there was actually charges of fraud if you implanted something that was outside. So this is, I mean, tell me if I'm right, this is a very significant thing that when a national coverage decision happens. It's a very significant thing, just as you said, yes. And ICD was another example where, I mean, CMS again looked at the evidence and said, these were areas that were um, where ICDs would benefit patients and then other areas where ICDs would not benefit patients and should not be used or covered. Okay, so um, I'm looking at the paper right now, and of course, I'll link to it on the on the, the Substack site. But so 
99 percent 424 428 comments supported coverage expansion exactly that's remarkable nobody was nobody was writing to cms and saying you know you all maybe this is a little bit too aggressive and we ought to pare this down a little bit yeah <laughs> it's I think by looking at who's commenting, a lot of them did have a lot of conflicts of interest. But also, I guess the other side, if we're thinking about it broadly, um, you could say the people who are more involved and may have, have financial conflicts of interest, um, they may know the devices or products a little bit better. So it's always... Um, we got to see the full picture, but then I would also argue that there are others who do not have financial conflicts of interest. They can also speak about this as well. And I think we are just advocating for more people, um, more diversity in those who are commenting. So the uh, getting into the, the nuts and bolts, um, you have these physician, physician commenters, but also, I guess, um, uh, uh, group commenters, organizations that commented, and then you are able to determine the conflict of interest because there actually is an, uh, uh, a database that uh, labels the the open payments database, and so you you look who comments and then you pair it up with the with the open database. Is that basically how it worked? Yeah, that's correct. Um, that's how we did it for physicians and also for teaching hospitals. This is all on open payments. And I, I'm reading from the paper that 76% of physicians uh, who commented, 76%, more than three out of four, have received at least one financial uh, payment. And uh, I mean, that's a lot. That is a lot. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and also, if you look at the numbers for if you're considering general payments, which could be um, like food, travel, stipend, um, things not related to research, on average, if we look at all four NCDs, they have about those payments came up to an average of $5,000 for each physician. Um, so that's quite a bit. If we add um, general payments and research payments, the average is closer to ten thousand. So um, it's a lot. <laughs> All right, now when you make a comment on an NCD, one of the things that came up on social media when the study came up, and either one of you can answer this question, but one of the comments that came up was that, look, John there was no place to disclose. We weren't hiding anything. We just, uh, we didn't, we didn't have a place to disclose. And, and so any disclosure would be totally voluntary. Like it would have to be front and center of your mind saying that I think there's expansion, but you need to know that I have this bias. And how would you answer that comment, criticism, whatever, what would you say to that? So, I mean, I would say, well, first of all, yes, it definitely is voluntary currently that 
you can choose to disclose or not, but there is a place to disclose because you could put it at the end of your comment, you know, whatever your funding relationship was. And it is also true. I mean, as Angela noted that the comments were overwhelmingly positive and it is certainly possible that people that commented that didn't have a relationship listed in open payments perhaps still had financial ties to the outcome of the decision because likely they could have been, for example, interventional cardiologists who do TAVRs and, you know, and had an income relationship. So just because you're not listed in open payments doesn't mean that you don't have a financial tie to the decision. Um, but it's certainly true that it's it's voluntary. So I think the paper was useful for noting and considering that perhaps like for most things, we do require disclosures, certainly for journal articles, you know, we have a ethical obligation and a moral obligation to disclose. And this is a really important uh, public comment area. And it's hard to imagine a good reason why there wouldn't be disclosure also required for public comments. So it's perhaps something CMS would want to consider for future. But also, I mean, I don't, I, I probably give more PowerPoint presentations than write, I definitely give more PowerPoint presentations than write journal articles, but literally every, you know, the first two slides, the, your first slide is the title slide. And the second slide is your disclosure slide. It goes without saying that if you're giving uh, an opinion or interpretation of data or something in the public space that some manner of, of disclosure would would be it it almost should be normal right i mean like i don't know taking your shoes off when you go in somebody else's house or kind of thing <laughs> it's just like that john <laughs> no i mean we're all gonna go to the american heart association meetings you know next um month where Angela will present this paper at the American Heart meeting. So come to that poster. But I mean, the first thing you know that you're going to hear, just like you said, at every presentation is going to be the disclosure. I mean, we kind of do it, like you said, without even thinking about it. That's you always do your disclosure. So why would you not have disclosures on CMS public comments, which have huge financial implications? Yeah, I... I I agree. I agree with that. And and um it, it was quite remarkable. I think I'm looking at the paper. What was it? 0.3% of of commenters voluntarily disclosed their uh uh conflict of interest. And the other point that I think is really important to emphasize, you alluded to it earlier, is that most of the physicians or groups almost all were in favor of expanding coverage. And a lot of these groups, you know, have listservs, they're often supported by the industry. And perhaps they have put out a notice, you know, tell, tell Medicare to pay for this or, you know, artificial heart or whatever the NCD was. And thus people do. But these are called public comments. But I wager that you have not submitted a public comment and most physicians in practice are not even aware that you could submit these comments. And so 
if this is really supposed to be a way for CMS to get input from the public or, you know, people that will be impacted or people that are interested, it seems that most of the comments are not representative of a wide spectrum, but mostly are people that have financial ties to the outcome of the decision and certainly um, are listed in open payments in that way. And so it, it does make you wonder about the process and whether there could be a way to have a more representative and truly public comments, because these are more like industry supported comments. So Dr. Liu, you are, you wrote this paper as a third year medical student. Um, and now you're first year resident um, in internal medicine. You're, you're young. Um, you haven't, uh, seen all of this stuff that Reed and I have seen. What what is your what is your impression about this? I mean, what are your gut feelings, and what do you think as a young person? I'm interested. I think there's always room for improvement and to in- continue to work on health equity um, and to have transparency in the healthcare system in the United States. So I, this research was really a stepping stone for me to get involved in health policy, to understand um, CMS's process of making these decisions. So knowing that I have mentors like Sankhya and Rita to really help inspire me to continue to work on this process and to be like leaders like them in the field. So I only have high hopes of making changes in the future. And we all have to start small one day. Um, And I think this paper, it will reach a lot of people who probably didn't know about this public comments period. And if physicians reading this they're saying, well, I don't have any financial conflicts of interest. And there are devices that or products that are under review right now. They can look it up and say, I'm going to comment and share my opinion and share the evidence I know about this. So I'm very positive if we continue to voice um, and research about this, this will be very beneficial in the future. All right. All right. Okay. Let me ask either of you. Um, I here's a question: If the average payment is five thousand dollars, and the average cardiologist makes a lot more than that, what would you say to the question of, "Well, these are really small. These are really small payments, right? Rel- I mean, five thousand dollars isn't small, but it's relatively small. It can't have that much influence." And what do you say about that? Either one of you. I know Rita. I I actually know what I I think I know what Rita will say, but I'm interested in either of your opinions. Um I I think even though for a cardiologist, even if five thousand dollars is probably low in the grand scheme of things, I think it still influences us in one way or another on how we view certain products. Like if we have a dinner with a company, 
even though it's just one dinner, which we may brush off at the end, we still get, I guess, more of a positive experience with certain um, representations. And that could influence our decisions on if we support a product or device. Um, I think even personally, if you're looking and you have a representative just talk to you about a certain device and they give you information about it. And I think if you th say there's no harm in supporting a device, I, I think it's, it just gets the ball rolling. Obviously I don't have as much experience as Rita. So I'll let her take, um, talk about this as well. Well, uh, before Rita comments, Dr. Lou, do you think that going to a big steakhouse with all your buddies and having some big Cabernet and it's free and you do this uh, a fair amount or you, you know, get flown off to a meeting uh, uh, to meet and have these big steak dinners that could possibly have an influence on, on how you think about these products. Yes. <laughs> yeah. I would agree. Uh, and actually, um, one of Angela's uh, predecessors, uh, Colette DeJong, is a medical student, and Colette's now a UCSF cardiology fellow. But when she was a med student, she did some work with um, others actually looking at that question and found that in a cross-sectional study of physicians, physicians who received even a single meal with a mean value of less than $20 to um, related to a particular drug of interest were associated with an increased rate of prescribing. So even small amounts and not even a big steak dinner with Cabernet, but a meal less than $20 has been shown to influence physician uh, prescribing habits. So, I mean, companies are doing these meals for a reason. And and the reason is that it, it has been shown to influence physician behavior. One of the issues in this paper uh, with these procedures that you looked at and in my field of electrophysiology is that so much of the things that we do um, are related to being facile with uh, the industry tools and um, you know, pulmonary thrombectomy, for instance, I mean, you've got to have experience with that device, uh, R catheters for ablation, TAVI, uh, you know, mitral clipping, all of these things require some collaboration with industry. And it's, I, I guess one of the, one of the things that I have trouble with is that so much of the e uh, education in my field, electrophysiology, and I'm sure in some of these interventional fields is, is, industry related and you you actually have to have some training in these devices but um it's so difficult because so many of these uh so many of these educational sessions are obviously biased i mean there isn't like i don't know how else to i don't know how else to say it is that i when, think that's the best place to get the edu your education is from someone who has a financial interest in the outcome I, it it really is problematic because so so much of the education, especially especially um, young physicians, comes from these industry sponsored uh, sessions and in, in which you learn how to use 
these these newer devices, but in the process of learning these newer devices, it's not really a, a balanced education. I think that actually the drug space is, is probably a little bit, a little bit less biased because I mean, you can get information on pharmacology and, and, and drug data in a, uh, I think in a more neutral way. Mm-hmm. Right. All right. Let me ask you, let me ask you this. What about the argument that so you so you show that there isn't a lot of disclosure of of, of conflicts of interest um, at AHA and meetings like that. There's going to be huge disclosure slides. But what about the argument that really disclosure doesn't make all that much difference? Uh, it's it's really just sort of window dressing, and it um, it actually doesn't have an effect, and might even have a might even have a uh, opposite effect where the more conflicts you have, the more sway you may have amongst uh, moving opinions. Well, w- one does wonder about that. I-, I will say I used to have a long commute. I drive an hour each way to work and I used to listen to the American College of Cardiology, those Axel tapes, you know, mm-hmm. and so and so, and there would be like the summary of the ACC annual meeting. So there, on the way to work, I could listen to about 10 or 15 of those talks because they were just a few minutes each. And every one of them started with, these are my disclosures. And it had no influence on anything that I'm going to say. I can tell you, I, I think I would have fallen out of my seat. While I was driving, if I ever heard someone say these are my disclosures, and they it did influence what I'm what I say, and actually, you know, now I'm gonna. So one could argue that no, it, it doesn't. I, I've never heard anyone who thought that the money was influencing how they thought or how they prescribe. But obviously, the companies aren't doing it because they're for charitable reasons. They're doing it because they see a return on investment. So. One could certainly argue that it's not having an effect, just making a disclosure and that. Or I've heard people say, and I think you have too, John, you've commented on this before. Well, I, you know, I have relationships with every company in this space, so that therefore I don't have any conflicts. I mean, I, I don't think that's a really plausible statement, but I've certainly heard it. And um, I think open payments has sort of advanced the ball, but I will say as a journal editor, there were certainly numerous times when someone would write to us, reviewers would note that um, an author had not disclosed payments they were getting when they were clearly listed on open payments. And then of course, you know, then there would be a process and usually people just said, oh, they didn't think it was relevant, they forgot, they things like that. Do you think there are better ways to address the conflict of interest problem than focusing on disclosures. Um, I mean, disclosure seems like the the minimum thing, but it seems like there are perhaps other ways that might be more fruitful. For instance. I think for some things you have to take the sort of the conflict really out of it. And, and, you know, disclosures, I mean, we, we, we do them at CME meetings. I don't think that patients are aware. I mean, it's not a fully disclosed. I don't think physicians are generally disclosing to their patients that 
they have a financial interest in this particular device that they're going to then recommend an implant in the patient. And so it's not really, um, even in transparency, I don't think we're there in terms of disclosures, but then for like, I, I don't think for trainees that you should like fly to Minneapolis to learn how to put in pacemakers at a particular company. Cause obviously then you're have a, so a relationship with that company and it's not the most objective source of data. Um, yes, I agree with that. I agree with that. Although I, I struggle to find, I struggle I struggle with the the whole concept that maybe either of you can help me, but there's there's clearly been innovation in the, the device space, right? So TAVI is an innovation, um, a biventricular pacing in, in innovation, um, uh, catheter ablation. I mean, we're 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 much better at it. I mean, sometimes we can almost do it with no fluoroscopy because of the innovative mapping systems that are come from profit-driven companies. So I struggle with the balance between knowing that there are innovators and and companies that promote this innovation and we we want that. But on the other hand, we also want sort of a neutral Martian approach to the evidence. And I I struggle where that balance is. Well, I mean certainly and I think now we're talking about maybe funding sources and the way research is conducted and education is conducted, but you can have an, you know, ind- you can maintain academic or editorial independence and still have an industry um, funding source for studying the innovation, but that's different than having someone whose hand is in the writing, hand is in the data analysis, hand is in the adjudication of endpoints and, you know, all of that. So you can maintain independence. But I think the other point you made about the trainee influence is really important because then it starts early on and, you know, flying trainees to, uh, you know, companies to learn how to put in these, you know, mechanical circulatory support devices. I have a lot of concern that that is not an objective source of education on those kind of devices and i see it happening everywhere yeah it is it is and um uh yeah i it, i struggle with it because there 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 is difficulty with learning some of these technical things without um being unduly influenced by by industry and i don't know the right balance but i think that i think that your paper showing that at least the culture of commentary the culture is not to is not to even think about it i don't think any of this was nefarious i think these commenters just it it, it just wasn't in their mind to think that that was important in making a public statement yeah um our our research group also agrees on that where we don't think it's nefarious at all and it's just that it wasn't on their minds and i i think we do a lot of things without thinking 
Um, and just having CMS, maybe having a section that's just saying, do you have any disclosures? That would be a very simple thing that we can start with and see if there is a difference with having people disclose and who starts commenting and seeing if there are changes. Um, I think we're moving in the right direction in just having more transparency when we know about this. Let me ask one final question and then, John, and then we'll, I just say, go ahead. I just want to agree with Angela. I mean, we did not say that anybody, there was anything nefarious about it. It's just, it's important to understand where the public comments are coming from. And, you know, the fact that 99% of them are positive sort of tells you who is making public comments. You know, 99% positive and 76% have financial relationships and open payments. Yeah, it's, it's, yeah, I, it, it, I don't, I mean, just the fact that it was so low, less than 1%, just, just thought of disclosing it is, um, I just think that people feel like it doesn't influence them and it's, it's not a factor. It's just, I do this procedure and I think we should have expanded coverage for it. Um, let me ask you finally, if, you had to make a pie and what percent would you say um and, and the pie was conflict of interest what percent is financial and what percent is intellectual because one of the arguments that i always hear is john you know this isn't just about the steak dinner and a glass of cabernet or whatever this is this is about people's intellectual interests they've done research in this area they do this procedure they believe in it and yeah, there might be some money involved, but it's really what what they believe intellectually. So this whole debate between intellectual conflict of interest and financial. I think the loudest arguments I hear about intellectual conflicts of interest come from people who have very large financial conflicts of interest. I mean, I think most, you know, it's been shown in repeated studies to be a huge influence on uh, people's behavior, physicians' behavior, and that's human nature. I mean, I think it's the biggest part of the pie. <laughs> Fair enough. With that, I'll um we'll end and I I really I really um I'll link to the paper Dr. Angela Liu um, Rita Redberg's one of the senior authors, Sankit Druva. Um, I think it's really important. Financial conflicts of interest in public comments on Medicare coverage determinations of medical devices. Take a look at it. Thanks for listening. Um, please remember, if you like this podcast, take time, write us a review, tell us what you think, uh, give us a rating. These things help others find us. So thank you both for taking the time to talk with us. Thank you for having us. Thanks so much.